Hello, this is Catherine Loveday and I'm the Political Education Officer for Chipping Barnet Labour Party. Thank you for downloading this podcast. This is Holly Rigby, who's an educationalist, a teacher and writes for The Guardian. She came to speak to us in the first of this season's series of Chipping Barnet Labour Presents. Thank you, Catherine, for inviting me. Um, just to give you a little bit of like um, my bio, so you kind of know um, where my background in education is. So I'm still a teacher. Um, I work now at School 21, uh, which is quite a kind of interesting, fairly liberal um, place to work. Um, but I'm also an NEU Young Teachers Activist. Um, I now write for The Guardian on like a freelance basis, um, mainly about education, but also about a few other things recently, Brexit meditation, anything that I kind of uh, are particularly interested in that month. Um, And I also recently completed um, some research into the National Education Service, which is um, Labour's flagship education policy, which I'm going to talk a little bit about today. So I'll kind of be drawing on all of those things, um, both my experience as a teacher, um, my kind of policy research, um, but also my kind of campaigning activist background. I kind of say I'm an activist first and I teach a second. So uh, I'm an activist teacher at the very least. Um, People have both kind of positive and kind of negative feelings about education, whether it be the kind of unfairness of the grammar school tripartite system, the way that working class children were often like undervalued and underappreciated, to the kind of more positive things about school being transformational and extracurricular activities in clubs and things like that. And yeah, all those positive things that we remember about school are becoming less and less possible in our current climate. We don't have the funding to take kids on that many trips. Why are the debates happening in extracurricular clubs and not in the classrooms? Well, because we've we've got this knowledge-rich curriculum, right? Why are working-class children being disciplined in such a way that is kind of crushing them and things like that? So we all kind of quite instinctively have a good relationship or understanding of what we think a good education looks like. And we look at our education system today and just think, God, it's so far, isn't it, from what we would want a really transformative, exciting education system to look like. Um, And I think it can be, uh, especially if you're a a teacher, an educator of any stripe, a parent, anything like that, it can be quite disheartening, I think, when you look around and you look at our our education system today from sort of universities and the tuition fees that have been imposed there. But even more than that, the kind of narrowing even of the curriculum at university level, the way lecturers are treated, to all the problems that we see in schools. Um, But my message actually, well, my message, the thing that I kind of want to start by talking about is I actually think there's a lot more reason for hope and optimism in education than than people realise. Because, you know, we're all here, we're all members of the Labour Party. Um, The the last three years uh, have been a a series of highs and lows, I would say. Um, uh, And uh, there's had to be a resilience in the movement. But actually where you've seen are the social movement the the strongest is in education, right? So... Last week, we had the incredible students going on strike in order to protest um, the damage that's been done to our climate. That's an issue that's been off the agenda for such a long time. And now students out there taking action and pushing that forward and pushing uh, issues forward. You know, we had an unprecedented head teachers demonstration outside Parliament um, in September. You know, head teachers, especially in current schools, not always the most radical group of people. And you've got 3,000 head teachers marching to Downing Street and saying, we cannot run our schools anymore. And that actually bringing, uh, bringing education back to the nas- nas- uh, into the sort of national question. 
I mean, even like in my own union. So the School Cuts website, um, which looked at the cuts to, to school funding, uh, was, was created by the National Education Union. And, and polling has shown, not that I always believe polls, but this one I, I agree with, so I do, I do believe in it. Um, but it, you know, it showed that um, 700,000 people changed their vote in the 20, uh, 2017 general election on the issue of schools funding particularly, and that 700,000 people mainly moved to Labour. And part of it was because of the strength of the school cuts campaigning. Um, so I do think that there is this kind of like, there is this sort of insurgency. I do feel that's happening in education now that is keeping education on the, on the agenda at a time when Brexit seems to be taking up all of the airspace, right? But yeah, it keeps kind of forcing through into the news by these kind of radical actions being taken by educators, by teachers, by parents. Um, so yeah, and I think, and I do, th I do think you're seeing this sort of tides changing a little bit. Um, and I think you're seeing the government actually quite frightened now um, because we've seen a couple of things recently, which, which I think to me definitely demonstrates that the government is very, you know, Ofsted, it's really started talking about, you know, we, we're changing, we're changing who we are as Ofsted. We're not this punitive accountability regime anymore. We're going to be looking at, you know, making schools holistic. They're not going to be exam factories. Why are they saying this? It's only because teachers for, you know, 20 years or even longer have been saying that Ofsted is stripping the heart out of our education system. Um, you know, even, even to the extent that, um, you know, the Lib Dems have even come out and said, like, let's abolish Ofsted and let's abolish league tables now. Those arguments have been won by the left, I think. Those are arguments that have been won by campaigners. Um, and I think that we have to really always remember that when, when you consider what, where the debate was, um, you know, just a few years ago, I think. Um, so what? So I mean, so so what? Do we, what do we need to do? Why? 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 Why is this important? Right? We can see all this. This, this is happening, um, and I kind of just want to make a bit of the case for the sort of ideological significance of education because I think that particularly um, on the left, um, the the Corbyn project has seen this incredible insurgency of like ideas and new thinking. You know, John McDonald's talking about the four day week and a universal basic income and things like that. Um, and sometimes it can feel like education doesn't seem to take as much prominence in our in our conversations as as I think it should do. Um, and I think that's I think that's really wrong. And not just because I'm a teacher and a trade unionist, but actually, I think that if we're serious about building a society for the many and not the few, then we have to take the ideological significance of, uh, of education um, really, really seriously. Um, for me, most importantly, is um, I mean, if we look at our, our education system today, what is the kind of the, the founding, the sort of driving principle of, of it, and it's this idea of social mobility, right? That the only reason you now get an education is the, so that you can, you know, work hard, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and reach the successes of the elites. Doesn't matter that the majority are gonna fail. Doesn't matter that there's, there's not enough room at the top for everybody to kind of, to, to, to get to that point. Um, um, and I, I do think this idea, this, 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 this idea of social mobility, our, our basically British American dream, is something we've got to really, really challenge because we still have this idea in society that you just have to get your elbows out as an individual and get to the top. Um, and you know, where, where does that come from? Yes, we've got The Apprentice and Alan Sugar and X Factor saying, you know, these individual stories of people who make it, but actually it's in, it's in schools and, and, and I think I'll give in universities as well that say every day, like, you know, you just work hard as an individual, you know, don't, don't worry about your friends, you know, just let them do what they're going to do. You just work hard and you'll make it, you'll find your way, um, you'll find your way out. And I think that 
that is really, really powerful. And that idea is really entrenched at, at a school level. And so we can't ignore the kind of ideological significance of that, I think, um, which is why I think we need to take a shift from social mobility to a much deeper sense of social equality in our schools. Like we need to change the idea. It's about individuals rising up of their, out of their station and thinking about, well, what does rising as a collective look like? What does it mean for us collectively um, to rise together? Um, not just taking working class children and sort of disciplining them to the nth degree in order that they can look something like an eat you know an, a student from Eton and that most of them are going to fail in those own, own terms anyway um so it's really really important I think um and I think that the, the kind of recent marketization of education is instilling real really deep values I think in how we see our public services because ultimately if you pay nine thousand pounds to go to university you you're consuming that education how does that then shift your perspective of our social services in general why you know what does it make you think about your relationship with the NHS, with the rails and things like that. Like it's super, it's really, really important, I think, that we consider how education kind of creates citizens and creates a citizen, citizen really, um, and take that really seriously. Take the ideolog ideological significance of that really seriously and therefore have some policies that could challenge this kind of marketization and neoliberalization uh, neo of education. So fortunately, we've got this big, huge idea in the Labour Party, the National Education Service, right? We've got this incredible, really, really radical idea that all adults from cradle to grave um, should be able to access education at any point in their life whenever they need it. Um, it's incredibly radical. I mean, it's basically just free education and loads of it, right? Like at any time of your life, at any time of your life and at any time that you need it. Um, and for me, I feel particularly passionate about this um, just because from my own, it's interesting hearing your experiences about, um, about school, the, the kind of good and the bad. Um, my grandmother was, um, she was, the, she was a working class and she was the daughter of a bus driver. Um, and she went, she actually went to a grammar school. She was one of those kind of very, very rare working class children who did actually go to grammar schools. And, um, and she basically, she, for her time, was a very intelligent young woman. And she won a place at Bristol University when she was 18, which was like, you know, almost unheard of for women to be going to university. And at that time, her mother fell ill. And so she never got to take her place at Bristol. Um, and so she didn't go to university because she was the woman in the family. She had to care, care for everybody there. Um, she actually went on to become a teacher in the end, but like it was her greatest regret that she never went to university. And even as a child, I remember her talking about, especially when I was applying to go to university, like how amazing it would have been. Um, and then when she was 80, uh, she decided that she was gonna go back to university. And she went to the Open University and she studied a degree in history. and so. She she graduated from the Open University at the age of 85 with a history degree. Um, and I was just like, that's amazing. For me, that's what the National Education Service is. It's saying that, why do we front load all of our education like right at the beginning of life? And if something goes wrong, life gets in the way, something happens, you never get that second chance again. I think, you know, my grandmother's story is an incre incredible example of that, of human flourishing, you know, even at any stage of your life and no matter what life throws in you at different points. So I think that NES is really exciting. I think it's incredibly radical. Um, but I think it would also be fair to say that it's probably the least fleshed out in terms of Labour Party policy. We've kind of got the principles, you know, OK, this is not about social mobility. It's about social equality. This is about saying we're, we're committed to the principle of free education, of non-marketised education, of socialised education. Um, what that looks like in practice um, is a bit thin at the moment. I write quite a lot about this. I, 
I find myself getting quite frustrated at the moment uh, with our current um, Shadow Education Secretary, Angela Rayner, uh, because I, I, I do feel like that more needs to be done on education, and I hope that kind of comes out in our discussion. Um, because we've got this kind of big headline policy of about tuition fees, which I think is amazing. And I, you know, I think in 2017 we did so well because of because of tuition fees, uh, because of the tuition fee pledge. Um, but if you look at the schools policies and anything deeper in universities or adult education or or further or um, further education of all sorts, um, the policies are still a little bit lacking. Um, I have to make a bit of an admission is that I'm, I am going to mainly talk about schools and what I think schools should look like within that. Um, it's sort of part of the course of being a teacher and an EU ref and things like that. Um, and I know that there are people that are interested in sort of adult education, political education. So I hope that comes out more in the discussion. But I'm just going to talk a little bit very briefly about um, how I think that what, what, what I think is missing, basically, from, from our schools, um, Labour Party policy uh, in relation to schools at the moment. Um, so the first thing, um, I don't think that you can really say you're building a national education service committed to educating in the interest of the many, not the few, unless we tackle root and branch the private sector. There has never been a time in Labour Party history where we've truly challenged the private schools, and yet we know that that private schools are the kind of bastion of elite privilege, right? Yes, it's the material wealth that comes from their parents that gives them that social capital and the cultural connections, but actually it's that it's the private schools which act as the funnel into the top jobs, into our judiciary, into the media, into our um, top universities, although I think top universities is a slightly contested term, but, you know, it, it is wrong that whatever you think of Oxbridge, um, it, is, it is wrong that, that um, private school students are still wildly overrepresented in, in these areas. Um, uh, there are two fantastic books, um, if anyone's interested. Um, one has the best title ever by Robert Vakite called uh, Posh Boys, How the Public Schools Ruined Britain. Um, so if you want a good read on really, like, the, the impact that privately educated generally men have the damage they've wreaked on society and I do think it's time to take that seriously like we have the most left-wing leader the Labour Party has ever had right Jeremy Corbyn like got divorced because he refused to send his children um like to a, a grammar or a private school right like this is a man seriously committed to comprehensive education I'm, I'm, I'm not saying advocating that people should get divorced over <laughs> over the selection of their, their children's education but you know I do think that this is like an unparalleled opportunity to really challenge the power of the private schools. Like, I, I, I just don't think we can say we're building society in the interest of many of the few if we don't challenge that. So what are the things we should do? Well, uh, what Robert Fakeg argues for, which I really like, is a, is a slow <coughs> euthanasia of private schools. Um, and it's quite a sort of nice uh, term. Um, and there are some things that are just really based, I just think would be so popular, I think just are so popular. Remove the charity tax status. In what fantasy world can they claim to be a charity? Like, you know, I think that any, anybody, like, you know, your, your sort of average man in the question time audience, when you say, is it right that, you know, ch parents who are paying £40,000 a year if their child go to Eton also get tax charity tax breaks on the fees, um, but not only that, on their business rates, which I find extraordinary. So... Business rates, they're like the council tax for commercial property. So like in your house, you pay your council tax and, and like uh, kind of commercial properties, they pay business rates. Um, because 
private schools um, are charities. They don't pay any business rates. Whereas secondary schools, this school has to pay business rates, right? So there are some councils where you're shutting libraries and, you know, you're shutting short start centres and you're giving and you're giving this tax break to private schools where they're not paying their business rates. And it's just, I just think that they can damn well pay it, basically. And I don't think it's a very difficult argument um, to win with, with, with most people. Um, and what you'd see through that is you would see a lot of the smaller private schools in particular closing because some of them, you know, don't have, I mean, the, the kind of Eatons of the world have that like substantial kind of historical wealth and things like that. Um, but if we are trying to sort of encourage people into the state sector and sort of redistribute wealth and cultural capital within um, comprehensive schools, you, those two policies would see the private schools not be able to operate. Um, and I think particularly in this time of austerity, sort of, you know, aspirational middle class families now not really able to afford the private school fees, maybe they could before, you could see this kind of shift. Um, the most radical of the policies, which is my favourite, um, is that it's to do with university admissions. Um, and uh, Robert Vakai also talks about this. And, and his kind of argument is, right, in this country, 7% of children are educated in the private sector. So you, in university admissions, they should only accept 7% of private school students to their university departments, right? Look how quickly parents take their kids out of private schools when that becomes, when that comes into fruition, right? Uh, I, I wrote about this in The Guardian and just got like loads of furious Guardian readers saying, like, this is outrageous, but it worked so hard to get there. It's like, well, no, you didn't. Like, this is what is coming back to this sort of madness of the social mobility myth that we say that you, you know, if you work hard and pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but yet if you pay £40,000 for an education, what, you're, you're, you're fighting in the same race even as, as, as a secondary school student who gets £6,000 a year spent on their education by the state. Like, it's just not right. And, and you know... We do still invest a lot of money in university research departments, like the, 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 the government does, the state does. And, you know, you could say that you could give them an ultimatum and just say, listen, we will withdraw our funding if you don't put this admission policy into practice. So uh, I think that would be a particularly interesting one. And I think it also it's quite a nice ideological one because it kind of highlights the sort of how unfair it is that our universities remain like elite universities, basically, and kind of funnel the elite. Um, how am I doing for time? OK, so... Uh, that's private schools. Um, I think, right, teachers are basically fucked, aren't they, at the moment? Like, excuse my language, but like, you know, it's it's just, it should be the most exciting job in the world. And teachers and therefore their students have just been battered and crushed like for the last 30 years. Um, and it is very difficult to be a teacher at the moment. You know, I, I love my job, um, but you know, I, I, I train teachers um, now as well um, on a kind of freelance basis um, and, tra and training teachers arrive and they're so excited and things like that. And you don't almost want to tell them what the reality is going to be like once, once they get into the classroom. And I think that we've got this recruitment and retention crisis. So, you know, now half of all teachers leave within the first five years of qualifying. Um, we have this madness where, you know, I get training teachers coming into school, I train them, spend loads of hours talking to them and working with them, and two years later they're out their door and I get another set of teachers come in and I'm training them and we're working with them and then they leave and another set come in. Um, and it's creating this kind of, this, this, this burnout culture basically that's making teaching quite unattractive. So I think you have to change teaching because I think that would change like how you see um, see students as well. So and make it that exciting profession. And for me, that that means dealing with accountability. Right? We've got to scrap scrap lead table lead tables. Like there's just no justification for them. They make head teachers make terrible decisions about um, the kind of what's the best thing for their communities. I also think we need to scrap Ofsted 
But I think we need to say that we will put in its place a rigorous system of collective responsibility. Accountability to me always sounds really punitive, I think, whereas collective responsibility, that I as a teacher am just as responsible for this school as the parents and the students within it, is a much more exciting kind of democratic proposition, I think. Um, but we have to take that, we have to take that seriously. Like, Schools are public institutions, you know, they're taking public money. And so we have to say, yes, we want to be accountable for that. Um, so and I think working out what that looks like um, is uh, kind of like an interesting um, trajectory. Um, I think there's also a lot to be done around assessment, around uh, why do we why do we do GCSEs now when students have to stay until they're 18? Like, what is this madness? You know, like no European countries have two sets of high stakes exams. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And because the the, the they're so high stakes, I mean, in my I'm in a much uh, sort of more progressive school than I was, but my last school we started the GCSE curriculum in year eight. Right, because like the the pressure is so intense to get the kids through the exams that basically the whole secondary experience is like an exam preparation experience. Mm -hmm. And what are those exams? From English, it's a body of elite, canonical, white, predominantly white male um, authorship. Basically, it was created by Michael Michael Gove with a sense of empire, re-establishing the sense of Britishness. What Britishness is this? You know, I, see, I taught in Elephant and Castle. Like, the, you know, talking about Victorian literature to my kids in Elephant and Castle just means absolute... Well, it doesn't mean nothing. I'm not saying it's not important, but, like, it, for me, it's just madness. So I think a lot of work needs to be done on decolonising the curriculum, absolutely. Um, and I think there are some people who are really seriously thinking about this and talking about this, and, and teachers want it. You know, we don't want... Nobody wants to be teaching this stuff. Who wants to be teaching things that... Um, you, you know that that is not relevant to their kids and it's not a fair reflection of what of what it means to be British, whatever whatever that looks like <coughs> and the fact that that is contested. Um, you know, we have to teach British values that Britain is a democratic, fair society. Is it? Like, you know, like, my, you know, my kids in Elephant and Castle, you know, had a lot of kind of anti-police sentiment and I would talk to them quite openly about that. Um, but I was called into the head teacher's office and said, you must reiterate that the police are a force for good in their community. It's like, well, they're not, are they? Because like, it's it's clearly it's clearly not the case. So, um, you know, I think the curriculum work is a sort of much uh, longer project. I think that Labour would do very well to say, we're going to sort of take a breath here, and we're going to think and consult with teachers and work with students to develop something new. I don't think it would be particularly appealing, attractive, or desirable to say, right, here's our curriculum. You know, two years later, you need to implement it because teachers have been through so much change. I think, um, particularly in the last sort of nine years of, of the um, sort of conservative, like real ideological projects. Um, so yeah, so I think there's lots of things that you could do in schools to make teaching a really exciting profession again. And that means bringing teachers back in. I think one thing that you could do immediately, I think a Labour government could do is say, well, we're going to second teachers into the Department for Education. Why do we keep having people making education policy who have never worked in education before? You know, Ireland does it. Ireland seconds teachers for two years, gets them in, helps them work on an area of policy, and then those teachers go back into their schools with a renewed understanding of the policy climate and knowing that they've actually had an impact on that policy-making process. You know, these are not pie-in-the-sky thinking, you know? Like, in Wales, the Welsh inspectorate have just abolished their Ofsteds. That sounds like a radical thing to say in England. And yeah, Wales have just done it, right? So you know, these things are so possible, I think, and I think they're, they're starting to become more normalised and, and starting to come to the surface. But um, I don't think we can rest on our laurels. Um, I... Uh, I, I'm always really interested in what the right are doing in education and I went to one of the conferences and Nick Gibb was talking there um, and what's really struck me is that Nick Gibb has been the schools minister for 13 years 
which is like almost unheard of, right? Especially in education where the kind of ministerial post gets turned over and over and over. Nick Gibbs been there for 13 years and he was the schools, the shadow schools minister for three years before 2010. He spent three years working on that curriculum and um, um, like uh, overhaul of the GCSE um, uh, assessment model and overhaul of the academization. And they spent a concerted amount of time before they got into government so that when they came in in 2010, they were ready to go and they did not hold back ideologically with transforming the curriculum, with assessment, with school structures. Um, and I think we need to do the same. I think that we have made a, a very, very clear case for what the problem is. And I think we have forced the crisis in education up the agenda. But I do think that amongst the Labour Party membership, um, all the way up to kind of um, to Angela's team, I think needs to be taking this a lot more seriously and, and kind of um, becoming ready for government. Um, uh, but I do, but I do feel, I do feel hopeful about that process. Um, like uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who's, you know, the amazing, um, uh, sen uh, she's senator or elected representative in New York, says, you know, wherever there is a fight, there is hope. And I look at education now and the fight just seems to be everywhere. Like every time I open the news, there are these kind of like eruption of kind of, uh, of kind of really fighting back against, uh, against the kind of education system as it stands. So I do think there's cause for hope and I do think there's exciting ideas coming. Um, but I think that there needs to be that pressure from the grassroots. So um, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure really to talk to people, uh, Labour Party members, because I always learn lots. Um, so I worked um, for an ARC Academy for five years. So right in the sort of belly of the beast, if anyone knows um, anything about ARC. Oh, yes, we do. Yeah, um, and they've been, and yeah, I mean, the takeovers of schools have been completely undemocratic. That you know there is no recourse to democracy within the acad within academies as it stands. Um, and I and I totally agree. I mean, Angela Rayner was kind of well known in her first year, kind of in her position, to say anyone who came to see her, the union or anything, you know, don't talk to me about academies. Mm. Ideology never put food on my table. That's always that was always Angela's line in the beginning that she was just not interested in in academies. Um, and I think it, again, it is a testament I think to the social movement that that has changed because. I I do think the Anti-Academies Alliance has, has been the crucible of basically this argument that academies are so damaging. I mean, th there was that TV programme, Panorama Exposé, like of, um, of the academy chain where they're uh, like this kind of weird subcontracting where academy CEOs have got like other private building companies and they're kind of funneling money through these these kind of other companies. So um, I do think that um, tackling that is really important. And I and I but I, Angela did change at conference in September. So she's kind of laid out a suite of policies, which I think are really good, actually, on academies at the moment, which is why I didn't touch on it. So she's talked about like pay ratios. So at the moment we've got these like fat cat CEO salaries, you know, like the CEO of my academy trust was on like 250k and my teaching assistants on 14,000 pounds a year you know mm -hmm. like what that is private sector thinking isn't it like within the public sector um and I think that that's the thing that we've got to challenge right because academies still are although they have the feel of the private sector and the practice of the private sector they are still kind of like publicly funded institutions but it's kind of trying to make the private the, pri the kind of private sector model look like it's the more rational efficient one isn't it right um and I'm sorry, I, I know I'm taking my space, but I do, I kind of want to throw this out, idea out and see what comes back because the, the line that has kind of come for quite a long time is that we need this return to local authority um, control. And I, I, I understand that. And there, however, I have some, I have some reservations about just saying return to local authority control in the same way that I have reservations about just saying like abolish like offsets, because I do think that there have been some like, 
brilliant examples of local authorities, but there have also been some local authorities where people have got long memories where it has they haven't served like you know working class students particular particularly well. Um, and I kind of think if we want like a future orientated party, um, and please do disagree with me on this, um, I think it's about saying, well, let's look at the multi academy trusts as they stand. There are some things that are good about them. They work, they connect up schools, you know, like we had um, moderation days all connected together. If teachers were in short supply in one school, academy chains moved them around there. Um, you had a lot of like uh, sort of professional development coming through from there. I'm not sure that it's electorally or, or in any way appealing to like break them up. And my sort of like demand as I'm articulating at the moment is to democratise the multi-academy trust to say, fine, you want to keep networks of schools that have kind of the same identity. Well, we're going to make you have CEO pay ratio. We're going to put staff, students and parents on your trust academy, on your trust board so that you have democratic right in there. We're going to put parents, teachers um, back into your, into your governance. Um, and then you basically kind of strip out the worst bits of the academies without having to rebuild this middle tier again because that is a huge project that would take up like a whole term of a Labour government and are we saying that's the only thing we want to do I'm not convinced it is but that would be the only thing we'd be able to do in, in, in a five-year term certainly did you did anyone see that the documentary about grammar schools where they followed um like some students through the grammar school application process there was like this amazing little girl called Juanita and like her parents were um, Nigerian migrants and she was working in Iceland um, during the day and she's working as a cleaner in the evening and they were literally in this tiny flat and she was spend the mother was spending £400 a month in order to get her child into a grammar school in Kent and it's just, it, it's exactly that because there's this sort of sense of desperation. Um, I actually think we've, I, I kind of think we've won the argument on grammar schools actually like because there's quite a lot of the right hate grammar schools as well because they're so like antithetical in some ways to the idea of social mobility because there's so much research now that shows that grammar schools basically have like I think that it's like three percent of free school meal students in grammar schools and so people know that they they they're, they're not like a sort of like they don't help working class children you know bright and talented to rise up um so I think that could be I think Labour should take that on definitely I think we should phase out selection um and that's interesting what you said about admissions for academies that is one of the things that Angela said that the first thing you could do on day one is bring admissions back into the local authority so that academies aren't selecting children in all these weird and various ways they do it so you know academies like um uh, like Bethnal Green Academy and KSA they've got these fantastic results and they're like look at us like we're doing this with this strict discipline and then you find out they've got like 20 places reserved for like music places and 20 places reserved for drama places. And then they make the kids do a test on a Saturday afternoon when hardly any working class parents can find out about it. And they say it's just for the banding and they find all these covert way ways of selection. So to make local schools again, you could say, right, from day one, you could be an academy, but we're running admissions. Mm. And look how quickly the, the kind of demographic of those academies changes. To be fair to my, I, go, I work in a free school, and to be fair, you know, they've said, well, we're going to give the admissions to new and local authority because we want to do something that's, that's generally progressive. And also how quickly the non-selective schools improve. Exactly, exactly. I, I think the thing to always take away is to always remain true to radical socialist ambitions when we're talking about what we want from education, but then saying, OK, well, what does, you know, the whole Corbyn programme is radical social democracy. The 2017 manifesto is not socialism, right? It's, it's, it's using some very, very smart policy ideas to win ideas 
ideas and win people around to changing what we mean by a good society. We have to have that conversation because it hasn't it hasn't happened. And I think that things like you know the slow euthanasia of private schools can start a real conversation about private school education and academies and tuition fees and all of these things. It changes what we think is a good education. So I would I I, I do wholeheartedly advocate for full radical revolution. I'm not sure we're in a sort of Soviet style revolutionary moment at the moment, but you know we we're, we're we're getting there. So. Um, thank you so much for your for your uh, for your time. Thank you. Thank you.